to 2 Corinthians, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is uh, at page 966, if that's helpful for you in your pew Bibles. We return after a hiatus of a couple of uh, holiday weeks to, um, to find Paul still in his defensive posture, still defending his ministry in this book from the attacks of many who have infiltrated the church he was instrumental in planting in Corinth. They've assailed him in his absence in many ways, ranging from poking at his preaching style to questioning his qualification to be a minister at all. One thing their criticisms have shared in common is this. They are externally focused. That is, they have all been directed at matters outward and temporal. They've pointed at his sufferings. They have They've pointed out the changes of his uh, travel itinerary. They've, they've, they've plucked at his plainness of, of speech and his lack of credentials, uh, not carrying the letters of recommendation that these so-called uh, uh, teachers did uh, in their satchels as they traveled about. Paul's reply here is devastating because it cuts right through all that. To what matters, cuts to the heart. Let's look after we pray. Father, we ask your blessing. In fact, we're being a little bit redundant because Deacon Shields has already done certainly a fine job of that. But we do ask once again your blessing on your word and that you will open it to us by thy Holy Spirit's power at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians 5, verse 11. By the way, let me pause just for a second. By way of context, may I remind you that the last, the last thing Paul has said, it's been a few weeks now for us, the last thing he said was this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who might, who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. During these days of frigid temperatures in our backyard, uh, we've noticed a flurry of avian activity. Almost any time of the day, you may look out our back window and witness uh, a panoply of colors uh, made all the more colorful for the gray wintry backdrop of red cardinals and purple finches and gold red-breasted woodpeckers, stark 
black and white of the downies and the black-capped chickadees, blue jays, slate gray, juncos, even an American robin dipping herself, if you can believe it, in these temperatures. I couldn't believe it myself. Dipping herself in our heated bath. Uh, what luxury our birds enjoy on the back porch. She somehow missed her bus, I think, to Florida. But it's fascinating to watch them as they chase one another from ground to feeder and from feeder to, to feeder until, of course, in comes the powerful jay and they all scatter in every uh, direction as he dominates the scene. And then those are, there are those flat, fat and playful squirrels vying for the unopened sunflower seeds and that fall from the feeder or to be king of the little hill of seeds left just for them. Fascinating, I say, because watching them, one cannot help but think, what is going on in those tiny little bird brains of theirs? Or rather, what is not going on? That is, and what I'm thinking of is motives. The total absence of motives in our little furry and feathered friends. Isn't it amazing to think that of all the creatures God has made, and even though all of those creatures, all of them bring glory to him, yet there is only one that is moved by motives or is even capable of motives for that matter. Man. No purple finch ever thinks to himself that he should make way on his little post for another finch to feed since it would glorify God for me to share. No jay ever feels an ounce of remorse over the evil of causing every one of his fellow fowl to expend so much energy on a cold, cold day just to make way for him. A squirrel doesn't chase the other squirrel away from the pile thinking, it's mine, it's mine, it's all mine. I don't care a whit what mother said when we were kids. You can buzz off and find your own. There is no motive. There is no motive, only instinct in the creatures, all the creatures, except for us. God has given us the only creatures he made has made in his own image. He has given us the gift of acting in everything and all the time according to motives. The gift, I say, and the responsibility. We cannot escape motives, can we? Everything we do, everything rises out of our hearts, out of our motives. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, Jesus says, as we think in our hearts, we live. It's an, an inescapable fact of human life. Paul has just written that we must all give account one day for the deeds we've done while in the body, whether good or evil. All of our deeds will come under the scrutiny of our Savior. All of them, whether good or evil. And what will have uh, made those deeds good or evil? On what basis will our judge make the distinction between good and evil? Merely on, on outward standards, do you think? On whether they outwardly conform to his law, to his rules, to say the Ten Commandments? 
No. And you know better. You know from your Bible that God does not look on the outward appearance only, but on the heart. We remember that lesson from Samuel, don't we? From Samuel's anointing of King David. Isn't that exactly the point that, that, that Paul is driving at here? These false teachers were all about the outward, all about outward matters, outward appearance, preaching skills, rhetoric, letters of reference, travel itineraries and the like. Not about what is inside. Not about what's in the heart. In this way, they were so much like the Pharisees, weren't they? of Jesus' day, who did many, many things that could be considered outwardly bad or even outwardly good. Jesus cut right through it all and exposed those charlatans for what they were inside, regardless of whether they were at that moment defrauding a widow or dumping all sorts of tithe money in the collection plate. All of it was evil. All their actions were evil because all of them were motivated by evil intent in the heart. Similarly, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to think higher thoughts and deeper about their teachers, about him, to consider what their consciences tell them. Not just about the apostles' actions, but, but about his heart. And in case for some reason they're so benighted, so under the spell of these false teachers now in the midst, uh, in their midst that they cannot deduce his heart from uh, the time he spent with them and what they know about him from direct experience, why he comes out and tells them just what it is that motivates him, what is going on in his heart. Now, what he tells them may seem paradoxical to us at first. Paradoxical, I say, because because he gives us two motives that might at first seem to contradict each other. The first is fear. And the second is love. Two motives, fear and love. They sound contradictory. They might to your ears because you know the scripture which says that true love drives out fear. Right? Right? The two are mutually exclusive, but they're not. In fact, they really fit perfectly together when, as we talked about earlier this morning, you understand what fear truly is. And I hope to show you this morning. First, though, let's make the connection to ourselves, shall we? Why is this all of this relevant to us? Paul may be making a point here about himself, and he is, about his own motives, the motives that drove his ministry and governed his life. But the principle here applies as much today to us as it did to him then. What filled Paul's heart and what holds on ours and holds the rein, really, on ours was the fear of God and the love of Christ. These two have always and ever been the truest motives of God's people for anything they've ever done or said since the very beginning. So first, dear flock, let let the first motive of our hearts be the fear of God. Verse 11, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. This is why Paul preached so passionately. Why he held on to his life, but only very loosely. 
Why he was willing to suffer all manner of persecution, even be stoned to the very precipice of death and left for dead. And all the rest, the beatings, the imprisonments, the shipwreck, the danger, all of it on behalf of Christ. For this simple reason, he feared God. And what is true of him has been true of every faithful servant of God before or since. It is, of course, the very opposite of unbelief in God. When Paul describes our natural state, that is, our state in sin, our sinful state, when we were outside of Christ, not believing, not following Christ, in his letter to the Romans, he concludes this long description, I won't read it all, you can take a look at it in Romans 3, of the moral depravity that marks us, and then he concludes it all with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's it. That's the bottom line. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, he was quoting Psalm 36. Here the two agree, the psalmist and David, that the root cause of sin, of all sin, is this. It's in the heart. It's the lack of the fear of God. It's not the act. It's not the word spoken against someone behind their back. It's not the driving the knife of somebody's heart. It's not the act of adultery. It's not the the stealing of what doesn't belong to you. The root of those things is the heart. It's failure to fear God. There's a lot of head-wagging going on, isn't there? A lot of blame shifting right now in our American society for the alarming increase in crime and sexual abuse and sexual harassment and murder and slander and violence. And in all of the scrambling that's going on, you've heard the blame game. You know, it's the blame the guns, blame the schools, blame the parents, blame the police. Experts work hard to identify the root cause for this pattern that is, that is growing. But the scripture hands it right to us. It's, it's not difficult. It's not overcomplicated at all. It's the perfect description of our culture, isn't it? More and more. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It's not a gun issue. It's not a school issue, it's not a police issue, it's not a political issue, it's a heart issue. Where there is no fear of God in the heart, then the life of individuals and necessarily the life of a society, of an entire culture, must decline and eventually disintegrate. Contrarily, where there has been righteousness in the life, we know there has been the fear of God in the heart. Let's take a quick glance and scan over the record with me. One of the most ancient men in the Bible is a man named Job, a righteous man, a faithful man, blameless and upright are the adjectives Scripture uses to describe him. Why? The Scripture tells us he feared God. His life embodied the fear of God both for himself and for his children, for his family. Abraham feared God, Moses writes in Genesis 22. That's what motivated Abraham to be willing even to raise the knife overhead 
prepared to plunge it into the chest of his bound son on the altar. Isaac, his dear son, if that's what God required of him, the fear of the Lord was his pure motive to obey. This, of course, causes us to think immediately of another who feared the Lord and called his children to do the same, even singing it to them. David sings Psalm 34. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. He called on all the saints, fear the Lord. For those, he adds, who fear him have no lack. Apparently, the lesson was not lost on Solomon, David's wise son, who wrote in turn, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fathers, if you want your children to thrive in the Christian life and eventually to enter the life to come, you have a pattern to follow here. Teach your children the fear of the Lord. Let them hear you sing it to them, even as you want them to prosper, as you want them to succeed in matters that really, in ways that really matter, not just for time, but for eternity, teach them above all to fear the Lord. If you want them to obey not only you, but long after they come out from under your influence, men, your direct influence, teach them to obey their Father and yours in heaven. Teach them to fear the Lord in their hearts. Why? Because Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Or Proverbs 22, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Here's the conclusion, the end of the matter. He writes, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And now very interesting. In light of the passage before us today, Solomon goes on to add this, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. See, the Bible's linking these two together all over the place, isn't it? Unless you should be tempted to say, oh, come on, you know, that's just a bunch of Old Testament stuff. Well, uh, God is different now. Then let me point out to you that this is also found in the so-called New Testament, that Noah is commended in Hebrews 11. Why? For his reverent fear. In constructing the ark for saving his household. It's the apostle Peter who writes in his letter simply this commandment to the saints. Fear God. And Jesus himself who said that we should not fear those who kill the body. Oh no. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear him who can cast and destroy both soul and body in hell. I could go on, but I think that sampling should be enough to demonstrate to you that the rock bottom 
of any genuine Christian life must be this motivation, the thing that moved Paul to proclaim the gospel, the thing that, that moves us to, to action, whatever it is, uh, obedience in your workplace, in your marriage, in your family, the maintenance of sexual purity, the taking captive of our thoughts, the reason we submit to earthly authorities that God has placed above us in the state, in the church, faithfulness to the Great Commission to bring the gospel to all the nations, whatever it is, treating your wife gently, submitting to your husband willingly, even the tiny things in our lives, the next assignment in school, the paper, the test, the use of our time, the entertainment that we choose to view and to listen to, what movies we watch, what books we read. Let it all, all of it be motivated by the fear of God and the knowledge that we will give account to him for everything. For every deed done in the body, whether good or evil. But what precisely is this fear then? I've been talking a lot about fear. What does this mean? What is this fear of God? Is Paul saying that he cringed in in servile fear, the kind of shivering fear that curls up in a ball in the corner, thinking God can strike me at any moment? Is that what Paul's describing here? Surely not. Although it's... Not unreasonable that an unbeliever should fear God in exactly that way. Outside of Christ, God is our worst enemy and terrifying. Of course, what makes such a fool of such a person as that, the foolishness of that fool is precisely that he doesn't fear God. He doesn't even really believe in God at all. Not really. Well, the kind of fear, the healthy fear that moves Christians to obey is the sense that they exercise in their hearts of the awesomeness and the holiness of God. This God is our Father. And like any earthly father who loves his children, he requires that his children obey him, that they remain faithful to him. He requires the fidelity of his children. And and like children of such earthly fathers, as many of us have had the privilege of having, we obey them out of fear, out of filial fear, the honor that sons have for the father whom they love and who loves them, who know from experience the pleasure of his approving smile and the displeasure of the frown of his displeasure on their naughty behavior. He's our father, but he's not our chum. Christ is our brother, but he's not our buddy. Oh, he is our friend. Absolutely, he is our friend. Jesus is the best friend you will ever have. but we mustn't be flippant with him. He remains and always remains God Almighty. That's why, as the writer of Hebrews says, in our worship and what we're doing in this place, 
every Lord's Day, uh, to offer God acceptable worship. We must worship him with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let the fear of God motivate you, dear flock. Let it be the reason you choose one thing and not another, why you choose to flip the television to this channel, but not to that one. Why you would spend the next hour doing this activity, but not that activity. Why you would suffer this inconvenience to tell this person the gospel when you've got other things you want to be doing, or to tell the boss no, if you must, when the boss requires what you cannot do, or to enter into this relationship, but to refuse to follow the path into that relationship, Behind everything, everything we do, every act, every decision, let there be a healthy and righteous, pure, holy fear of God. At the same time, second, we must live our lives motivated, verse 14, by the love of Christ. Somehow we like this one a little better, don't we? The love of Christ controls us. Can you, can you say the same about you as Paul said that the love of Christ controls you? The love of Christ controls you. What, what is it? You tell me. What drives your decisions? What, what drives your direction, your, your plans? Not only for this week, but for your life your actions, all of them. I can think of lots of things, lots and lots of things that too often control mine. There is my love of ease, my love of leisure. There's my love of praise, and I don't mean the praise of God. I mean the praise of men, my pleasure. Others' pleasure with me. You know it yourself. You know those things, don't you? You you know how you're controlled too often by a desire to be approved by other people. Let's just all lay it out on the table. I'll, I'll lay it out. Pastors can be moved to work hard on their sermons, not because the love of Christ controls them, but because they desire the compliments. Now, you think carefully. What controls you? I won't make you confess it out loud right now, even though I have before you myself. How sad it is, how disappointing it is to think sometimes about our true motives. It it sullies everything, doesn't it? It it sullies our actions, no matter how impressive they might seem otherwise and outwardly. There's a movie coming out right now that Debbie and I are hoping to see about Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Churchill was a true hero in so many ways. But it will be interesting to see when we watch the movie whether whether the writers of the movie are willing to reveal the heart of that one whom we admire. For example, for his great daring, for his courage under fire as a young army officer. What controlled Churchill? What drove Churchill? What motivated him in battle? What noble cause made Churchill transcend and triumph in battle? We cringe to hear him say it, and he did in a letter home to his mother that his courage, 
he wrote, was motivated by the desire to get a medal that he could wear to the dance or to the ball when he returned to England. Churchill was a man who lived for the praise of others. Having gotten far too little of it from his parents when he was a boy, he spent the rest of his life trying to make up the loss. Churchill hardly ever did anything without a thought to whether it would make him look brave, make him look clever, or make him look generous in the eyes of others. We know that this kind of thing happens and is true all over the place. What was true of another great Brit, General Bernard Montgomery, we know about our own General Patton. Perhaps the two most famous fighting generals in World War II, they were both prima donnas, and more than once, they got soldiers killed by acting in what they took to be in the best interest of their own glory, of their reputation. This is what motivated those false teachers in Corinth, what motivated untold numbers of preachers in the Christian church, no matter how they might protest to the contrary. Take a look someday at Philippians and see those ministers Paul talks about. They lived not for the love of God, but for the love of praise, the love of glory, not of God's glory, their glory. Not so, Paul. The love of Christ controls us, he says. He was absolutely captivated by Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ was all, and by the sacrifice that Jesus had made for him and to purchase him, that one has died, he says, for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for their sake, who for their sake died and was raised from the dead. How could he be the object of such love as this, such amazing love that caused our Lord Jesus to be willing to die for us in such a way that he not only died for us, but did you notice this in the text? He died with us. Or rather, we died with him. That is, that he was willing to be joined so in union with us, my brothers and sisters, that our death and his death should be joined together and he suffer under sin and all of its terrible consequences. And then free us not only from those, not only from sin's penalty, but even from its power. I say, how could Paul, how could we be the object of such love as this, and not be motivated always and in everything by this love, by this amazing love. If this is true, my brothers and sisters, if Christ has died and risen again for us, and we have died and risen again with him, then this love must be the thing that controls and directs us from the time our feet hit the floor in the morning to the time they hit the floor the next morning and every morning until finally the dawn of heaven breaks. Isn't that the conclusion that Paul himself makes? Verse 15 that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake 
died and was raised. If we've sung these words together in this house, my brothers and sisters, once, if we've sung them once, we've sung them a thousand times, haven't we, from Isaac Watts. You know it. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. How many times haven't you said that to the Lord? And you've never said a truer word than those. Now let it be so. Demands my heart, you said to the Lord. That is my motives, my innermost desires. The controlling factor for every decision and every word and every act. This is what the amazing love of Jesus shown to me requires then from me. Dear flock, work, work to purify your motives. Ask yourself again and again and again all day long, why am I doing this? What am I doing this for? Why this? Why that? If we would be Christians in the fullest sense, let us be unwilling to be satisfied with anything less than doing the right things for the right reasons. From that perfect combination of reverent fear and controlling love. Toward that end, let us pray every day. We can pray this simple prayer from Holy Scripture. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Amen.